Hey, everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here in Dining Room Studios with Gustavo Ariano, nationally syndicated Ask a Mexican columnist, publisher, and editor-in-chief of the OC Weekly, um, written three books, and you work on Bordertown on uh, Fox, right? I'm a consulting producer on Bordertown, yeah. Okay, so we'll get into all that. Did I leave anything out? Oh, geez. Uh, KCRW commentator. Yes, uh, NPR as well, NPR, right? NPR, a bunch of crap, the hardest working Mexican in show business probably <laughs> at this point. M- m- even more than George Lopez, I would argue. But uh, no, it's just awesome to be here. It, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about it, but it's just so surreal to see you here doing all the success that you have because the last time I saw you, I think, was 14 years ago, mm-hmm. and here we are now. I know. It's uh, it's crazy. We, we were – so for uh, for listeners who don't know, and, and why would you know except for maybe you're getting a hint of it from what Gustavo just the said. The diehards. <laughs> we know each other from a really long time ago because I used to work at the OC Weekly, and – uh, here's my memory of you. I think that we <laughs> barely overlapped, but what I remember, so I left the OC Weekly very early in 2002. I continued to freelance a bit for that. You have to play yourself up about what an awesome writer you were oh, at OC Weekly, though. No, no, seriously. <laughs> I mean, the, you are, you know, one of the, uh, the, the OC Weekly really quickly for people who have never read it, you know, it's an alternative news weekly like the Village Voice, like LA Weekly, but we're a whole different breed. And the, what I'm most proud of the OC Weekly, I'm the editor now, is that we have been a breeding ground for all these amazing writers who went on to do bigger and better things like yourself. Oh. Meanwhile, us trolls, we just stay there in the salt mine and just keep producing all these amazing writers. But no, no. So that's why to have seen all of your success and all your continued success, we always say, yeah, we remember her when. <laughs> OC Weekly all the way, 100%. Oh, my God. That's the nicest. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about she your talk about evolution. Herself. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I do, trust me. (laughs) Well, really quick, one final plug then for you as an OC Weekly writer. So Allison was always awesome talking about culture in Orange County, talking about music, all these great cover stories about the, you know, essential bands that were coming out of Orange County, late 90s, early 2000s. Her most famous piece in OC lore, though, (laughs) was this, like, mea culpa about how much you loved and loathed the paintings of Thomas Kincaid, the, what do you call him, the creator of light? Painter of light. Painter of light, trademarked. Yes, it is trademarked. He is, yeah, he's truly odious and he represent, or he passed away, but he represented truly pretty deplorable things, which I think that we all kind of agreed with. Uh, but then I confess to Will Swaim, who I know had a huge role in your oh, yeah. career, which we'll get into, that I can't help it. I like looking at the images. And he's like, you have to write about that. And I was like, really? I don't, huh? And then, um, but he he just had a really good nose for what could make a good story. Oh, yeah, sure. it turned out. I think honestly, it's the story I'm probably most proud of. It was an amazing story. I mean, I, I still we still show it to the young writers when we oh. say absolutely. Oh, stop! It's don't I, stop. You know, <laughs> you know, I never lie. But you know, it to me, it's a great example of a sh- of a story idea that comes out of someone's personal experience. And you say no, talk about it because a lot of times people think, oh, what I find interesting, no one else finds interesting. And sure, if you like like very specific things but if you could humanize it in a bigger way then oh god it turns into an amazing story so anyways allison rosen oc weekly alum 1999 to 2002 forever a weekly that's all i wanted to say 
Well, something we can get into more later, but sure. just as an aside, um, I was sort of um, frustrated and maybe a little uh, disheartened in my subsequent journalism jobs to work at places that did not have that same conception of what could make a good story, you know, where it was really just it. There, there wasn't a real chance to for to let the story unfold as you're writing it. Like it needed to be all there in the pitch, and definitely have a timely peg, and just I don't know, le- like le- less of that real first person alternative. Yeah, no, journalism. The, o- the OC Weekly is a magical place, and you were one of those people right at the beginning who set up to make it the magical place that it continues to be. And I'm, I'm more than anything in my journalism career, I'm proudest of the fact that we we've been able to maintain the weekly, the crazy, insane place it has always been at at its best. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was I was um, reading a bit of your second book personal orange, orange county, county. <laughs> okay orange I'm county like, of personal history i was so close um and i was reminded of that very specific oc weekly voice uh which is so um i don't know kind of no holds barred is not the best way to describe it is accurate but i feel like that's cheapens it i i have found pointed the, be- the best describe description of oc weekly i and i call ourselves this we're the last of the steam powered trains just like the old King song, just we're, we're retrograde. We're totally mm-hmm. retrograde and we're proud of it and we don't care. And we'll continue doing it until, well, you know, until someone shuts us down. <laughs> like I always tell people, like I'm not leaving my job unless I die, unless I get fired or unless the paper folds. But it, that's that sort of just bare knuckles, no hold barred yet. Hilarious. We're all a family style of journalism right. that you really can't find nowadays, period. No. Like e- even with the, you know, the new sort of, you know, the rise of BuzzFeed and Vice. And I have friends who work at those and they like where they're at, but it just doesn't have that. It's like simultaneously we're tiny and we know, but we always swing way above our weight. I'm mm. a boxing fan. So that's another metaphor. <laughs> a lot of metaphors here. Well, so let's, okay. So, my memory of you, I was kind of on my way out, uh, and you were interning there, I believe. No, I was just a random guy who walked into the office. Okay. You, I think people thought you might have been an intern, though. A will turn, as Patty yeah. Marsters put it. <laughs> okay, oh, man, we got to get into that, because I also was hired in a way that no one was aware, and suddenly I was there, and they're like, who is this person? <laughs> they thought People thought, I remember someone said they thought that I was a sullen intern. I'm like, no, I'm above <laughs> that, <laughs> and I'm not sullen, but thank you. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, so you were, you were around. And Will, the editor-in-chief at the time, had taken an interest in you. And then pretty soon, you were writing a ton of stories every week, and everyone was worried that you were making them look bad. (laughs) And either the paper or you had gotten the nickname Gustavo Weekly, right? (laughs) I don't know. There was some nickname for you and and for how... How many stories you wrote every single week? I did not know of this. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I knew the, the the best. You know, when I got in there, I, like I, only, I have a very vivid memory of you. You were already on your way out, literally. Like mm-hmm. everyone knew, you were off to bigger and better things. I yeah, because what happened is I knew I was going to New York. Yeah, so I think I was like, I'll be here for another month or two, basically. And I remember we we didn't talk to each other, but I said something that made you laugh. 
And I was so excited. I'm like, I made Allison Rosen laugh. Like, that is so cool. Because you uh, you were a total person. Like, oh you were a God. thing. And people Thank were you. like, oh, like, you know, how are we going to replace her? No one really knew. And then on my end, you know, as a, I always tell the story, and it was in our 20th anniversary issue. I was the one who wrote a fake letter to the editor about an April Fool's issue that we did. Uh, I apparently for six months, I just threw a whole bunch of story ideas to both Will Swaim, the editor, and Nick Scow, who's mm-hmm. our current managing editor, but back then was just a staff writer. Eventually, I wrote a story for you guys, and then Will Swaim invited me to go into the office, and I'm like, I kind of like this. So I just started showing up in the office, and I don't even remember anyone else, I mean, in terms of interactions, because it's so... I mean, I have spots here and there, but like, you know, I remembered you, but then by then you were gone and it was early on. I think you left early 2002. Yeah. I, well, like, yeah, like March, April, May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like took me a a number of trips to actually leave. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no. So, but yeah, eventually, I don't know. I, I, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants. Uh, I was taught to work your ass off nonstop. And once I, and once I got into something that I really wanted to do, which was journalism, I figured, Hey, if there's opportunities for me to write, I'm going to write. I didn't know anything about office politics. I did, I never once wanted to make anyone look bad. But then one day, Nick Scow, who's he has always been my best friend at the paper, he takes me out to lunch and he tells me, "Did I ever tell you the story about my dad and the lumber yard?" I'm like, "Or the lumber mill?" I'm like, "No." He's like, "Yeah, one time my dad came back from college, so he decided to take a job during the summer at a lumber mill, and he was working so hard that eventually one of the older guys takes him aside and said, "Hey, look, kid, you're making the rest of us look bad. Uh, if you can." Continue this pace. I'm gonna have to break your arm. <laughs> I just left, and Nick just left that at that. I'm like, God, I was just want to write. I think he was, and <laughs> Nick is. You know, I, I always call him a terse Norse. He's of Scandinavian heritage. Yes, so. he is terse. The terse and Norse. taciturn. <laughs> but a wonderful man. He's taciturn. <laughs> taciturn. I'm gonna tell him that. He'll love that. <laughs> but. I, I never had an inkling that people might be like, hey, Gustavo's writing too ba- too much and making us look bad because to me, everyone was an idol. It was like, oh God, this is the OC Weekly. I'm lucky to even be like hearing why my stories suck from mm. them. Like, I love it. I feel like it's it's funny. I was, my husband and I were just talking about this recently. I feel like in life, I have often been naive to office politics as well. Mm-hmm. It's like that piece of my brain that, that should be aware of that. Just I think I'm too – I don't know if I'm naive or innocent or I don't know what it is, but I'm just always like, I can just take people at face value and everyone's rooting for each other. And like that's so not the way the world works. I I think at least historically – I mean there's always going to be office politics one way or another – I think toward the end, I was definitely the victim, not the victim of office politics, but the subject of a lot of, you know, I love all these people, so I don't want to say hate, but I caused consternation to some people. Let's put it that way, because of the work that I did, because of some of the notoriety that I eventually got, and I never liked it. So when, you know, ever since I become editor of the paper, I tell everyone, I don't have the patience for office politics. We are here to cheer each other 100%, not just in the work that we do, but in what I call the extracurricular activity that we do. And I mean, you know, uh, my music editor, Nate Jackson, just did a history of OC Punk for Vice. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. He's like, oh, I didn't want to tell you. I, I think you'd get mad. I'm like, no, write more. You know, obviously for our paper, write the stuff that no one else is going to write. But for a national publication, look, for us doing a history of OC Punk, we might as well do, hey, guys, there's this new uh, place called Disneyland in Orange County. <laughs> Let's do something about that. So, no, no, I, I, I've never been jealous of talented people. 
I've never, and especially people that I know far from it, I've always applauded anyone succeeding above and beyond where we're supposed to. So yourself, you know, Rebecca Shonkoff, Comedy Girl, now has Wonkette. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have people, you know, former alums working at the Huffington Post, at NBC News, all these amazing, awesome jobs. How could I ever be... Oh, how dare you, Allison, have this amazing podcast. I've always wanted to do a podcast, so screw you. That's stupid. It it makes no sense. It speaks more about my pettiness and my insecurities than, you know, the success of any other people. And and I'm not a petty, insecure person. So I'm torn because I personally so badly want to know, like, well, how did you go from being a will turn to now being editor and publisher and how it all happened? But... Let's get to that after yeah, we go the, back we, we, to you, the beginning. You, you got to uh, entice the audience to make sure it's not just inside baseball between you and exactly. I. Exactly. <laughs> so ta- let's talk about Mexicans. Let's talk about tacos. <laughs> let's talk about Bordertown and all the fancy stuff. And then later on, we'll, well, whatever you want to do, of course. Actually, no, not necessarily the fancy stuff. I just wanted to go back to your um, childhood and how you – because I know, I, I know that – I was surprised to learn that journalism was not your first love. You wanted to do film, right? Yeah. So let's go back. You were born in Orange County. Born and raised in Anaheim. But a child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And your dad got here in the trunk. Is that right? Every which way but lose. My dad, the first time he came to this country was 1968. He was 18 years old. Him and his cousin paid a hippie chick from Huntington Beach and his and her pocho assimilated Mexican boyfriend, 50 bucks a piece. What's the word for assimilated pocho? Mexican boyfriend? Oh, no, no, assimilated Mexican-American, period. But okay. it was a boyfriend. Bocho? Bil- Bocho. P-O-C-H-O. Bocho. Gotcha. So uh, they paid them 50 bucks a piece to get stuffed into the trunk of a Chevy, or as we pronounce it, Chevy. <laughs> a Chevy that went from Tijuana all the way up to Chinatown here in L.A. So mm-hmm. for two and a half hours, my dad's in there holding it in because he had just taken a whole bunch of Budweiser's. Oh, so geez. he had to take a piss so bad. <laughs> the trunk opens. He runs off to like this bar. What was it called? The building still exists. I don't think the bar exists anymore, but it was called the Venus Bar way mm-hmm. back when. So that was the first time he came here illegally. Another time he And hop- what what had he come here for? The you know, what all immigrants come here for, better life. I mean, but my parents come from two villages almost next to each other up in the mountains of the state of Zacatecas in central Mexico. So as I always try to explain it to non-Mexican audiences, my parents are basically Mexican hillbillies. Mm-hmm. Like people make fun of people like that. We were poor, or they were poor. They spoke funny Spanish. They had like, I mean, damn, my my mom's village, (laughs) my mom's village cousins were marrying each other like crazy. In fact, later on, when I became a teenager, my second girlfriend, when my mom found out who she was, she's like, you cannot date her. I'm like, why? (laughs) Because she's your second cousin. She's my cousin's daughter. Like, if you have babies, they're going to be coming out retarded. But then I'm like, but her parents are also second cousins. Mm -hmm. She's like, yeah, they're all retarded kids. So small, small town, but nothing, you know, nothing happening there. Uh, You know, droughts and um, frost came and ruined all the crops. So my dad, he wanted to find a better life for himself. His his older brothers, my older tios, uh, were already in the United States in East L.A. So my dad just came to this country. And he didn't have, you know, people always say about legal immigration, oh, why don't they wait in line? Well, when you're starving, I don't think anyone wants to wait in line. I mean, you just jump it. And so my dad jumped the fence, cut a hole through a fence, walked across the desert, um... Gosh, he came here probably 12, 15 times every which way but loose. My favorite one was when he, quote-unquote, borrowed his cousin's passport to be able to get on a plane ride from Tijuana to San Diego, Mm -hmm. which is like a minute. And then (laughs) he gets off the the plane, La Migra gets him, and then throws him off to El Centro for six months. 
he so he did his time for the crime, <laughs> and then the the best time though was when he crawled through a sewer for an hour. Oh my god! With a, a sewer with like shit and sewage, oh. he had to keep his head up oh. above all of that. Oh yeah, and the Glamorous. best thing the best thing though is that it um it emptied out right next to a McDonald's in San Isidro. <laughs> Don't eat McDonald's, kids. Now, when you say funny Spanish, because my brain is stuck on that, um that that as Mexican hillboys they spoke funny Spanish. Does that mean uh? The, the language they used or the accent? Both. The words, simple words that we use, like what would be a good way? You know, a lot of Elysian. So instead of saying para allá, we'd say para You know, just shorten words. Mm-hmm. What are some weird words? What was my mom saying the other day? Like literally yesterday, we were talking about this term. Oh, oh it's just like, what's another one? Like, uh, oh, like my dad says instead of like the saying for uh, you're, you're gossiping a lot, he would say, estás diciendo mucho weedy weedy. Like, you're saying a lot of weedy weedy. What does weedy weedy mean? Who the hell knows? <laughs> but that's what we say. Oh, another example. Instead of saying si, yes, we say chi. Mm. Chi. So little stuff like that with educated Mexicans, they'd mock us. It's just like hillbillies, you know? So I always tell people, like, right. I've always felt- You guys are like Duck Dynasty. <laughs> Mexican Duck Dynasty. <laughs> Except I like Kentucky more. So let's say, call us moonshiners or some <laughs> stuff like that. But yo, I, so it's always funny because whenever I go to the South, especially Kentucky, I feel at home because there- you know, all those good old boys, they love horses, they love to drink, they love to fight, they love weird music that's all about how the perfidy of women and more horses and moms and all that. We're kins. We're, we're, we're brothers from another madre. Do they love you? They love me because when I'm able to make those connections, they get it. And it's interesting because there's more Mexicans going up there and like for the most part, they get it. They don't like black people, but Mexicans, <laughs> hey, we're fine. Ah. Uh. So apparently, I'm jumping around a little sure. bit, but someone at the very beginning when you were at the weekly, someone made a very racist comment to you. And when I heard about that, I heard you on another podcast. Um, I was like, holy shit, who was that? And I know you're not going to say on air, but I've got to find out off air. But tell us what the comment was. So my very first time at the OC Weekly offices, Will Swaim is going, you know, taking me around. And then I get to someone. Anthony Pignataro knows, by the way, who and and then okay, that means it's not Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Anthony at all. But um, I, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I saw your byline in our paper, and I didn't know that our truck, the, our delivery drivers were now driving for us. We're not writing for us. Yeah, we're we're, we're we're now writing for us. And I just remember, I remember snapping back. I'm like, Mexicans know how to write too. I was just so, I'm a touchy person. I, you know, I. It's funny because I have a, a I, I, you know. To be in our paper, you have to have a skin of steel to mm. deal with all the haters and all that. But certain things will tick me off. And I remember that. I mean, I'm what? I would have been 21 years old, still in college. And to hear that, I'm like, come on, really? You're going to say that? Even if you're trying to bust my balls, you don't know who I am. Right. I, I know who you are, but like, come on. And let's just say there was a lot of tension. It's always been the, like the dirty secret, like the, you know, the, the kid, uh, chained to the basement in the <laughs> weekly. Cause people always ask me. And, I mentioned it in my Orange County of Personal History book. Yeah, I, the only person who uh, I've ever told that to is Anthony, and then you're going to be number two, and then that other person. <laughs> uh, yeah. I I mean, it's just surprising to me because there's plenty of, of very uh, racist institutions in Orange County. OC Weekly, absolutely not one of them. So – it's surprising that someone said that, unless they meant it as a joke, but still. Maybe. I mean, again, in their deference, maybe it was a joke. Maybe they were trying to bust my balls. But at the same time, coming in, they're not knowing the culture yet. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
I'm a nerd, so my entire life, like my wife loves to pick on me because I hate getting picked on. I hate it because I was a nerd before nerds were cool. So it's that it's that one trauma that I have. I'm like, please don't make right. fun of me. We could I joke have about that it. Too. Really, I have that too. Like, yeah, who could possibly pick on you? There, there are people losers. But, but there are times with my husband where he'll say something that feels like teasing, and I'll say, I feel like you're teasing me. And he'll feel really bad because he didn't mean it to him. It was fine. It's just the different, different, like what sets different people off. Absolutely. And I have that same thing with feeling like I'm being teased or mocked or something. You you know, but I'll say this for, you know, on your husband's defense, because this is what my wife tells me. And it's absolutely true. Like she's a natural teaser. So she's like, if I didn't tease you, then that means I don't love you. Like, because I love you so much, I'm just going to poke at you. It's almost like you're a little kid. Like, oh, like, you know, like pulling the, the little girl that you have a crush pigtails, on. Right. Yeah, the pigtails. So I'm like, okay, fine. And then she starts teasing me again. I'm like, no, not too much. <laughs> like, I'm a sensitive soul for crying out loud. Okay. So parents got here, raised you in Santa Ana, right? Anaheim. Anaheim. Anna crime. That's right. Anna I knew slime. that. Uh, and what was your childhood like? You know, my mom was a tomato canner. My dad, he used to be a carpet cutter, but then he uh, hurt his back. So he's been a truck driver now for about 35 years. So Your mom worked in a factory? Tomato cannery. If you've ever had Hunt's ketchup or Peter Pan peanut butter, my mom would box that and would drive a forklift to put it up on pallets. Okay. It, was a, it, was, it, was, it was a union job, really good work. So, I mean, we're working class folks, but we had health insurance uh, through my mom. Uh, you know, the first house that I, I was born in, it was in uh, it was one of those granny flats behind a lumber yard and mm-hmm. in, in an alley. And I guess there was heroin users because I remember needles there and I thought they were basketball needles. <laughs> and I would look at them like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it, it was an idyllic childhood, I, I would have to say. I mean, we never we were never rich, but I, we never wanted for anything. And more importantly, you know, I grew up. God. I think I have probably 200 cousins, first cousins, Damn. And, and a shitload of second cousins. So I was just, you know, my best friends were my cousins. We all grew up together, went to, you know, then went to elementary school, obviously. And I was a cool kid until second grade when I got glasses. And then bye-bye coolness for me. I remember that too. I love that you remember the glory days of kindergarten and first grade. Oh, God. You know, there was one time it was, it was the second graders versus the sixth graders in soccer. Uh-huh. And I made the sliding, like, they were about to score a goal and I slid, so I knocked the ball they they carried me away that that's like my crowning athletic achievement i remember <laughs> i remember those days well and then and then we uh might we were able to buy a house in you know when i was growing up it was all mexican neighborhood mm-hmm. then my parents bought a house we went you know with the swimming pool the typical american dream but none of our white neighbors wanted to live next to us so they all moved out within a couple of years except the guy across the street and now i think he's gay it would make a lot of sense because he was never married and there's mm-hmm. always random guys there. So I'm like, oh, that's what it is. Hopefully you don't hear this. But that's what I think. Oh, man. <laughs> is he one of my listeners? Hello. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> so all the other people started moving out just because your family moved in or were there? Was there like an influx of Mexican Mexicans? Yeah, that's how white flight always works. It's always like the first Mexican family comes in. Then other neighbors are like, ah, we don't want to live with these Mexicans. Then they move out. Then a house comes for sale. A Mexican family moves in and whatnot. And, yeah, and I remember like the neighbors that we had, they, they weren't nice. They did not treat us nice. Within five years, it was, you know, there was just that one white guy. Though, although we had some really cool white neighbors, Cajuns. They were like straight up from Louisiana. Like, you know, what was his name? 
typical like Billy Bob Rubido total. <laughs> I mean, and we totally got along because they were French Catholics. Bad English, but they were wonderful, wonderful people. And then they were like, you want to talk about, you know, oh, Mexicans ruined neighborhoods. They had like five Cajun families living in their house. Including, <laughs> they, they ended up buying a bus and they turned that bus into house housing for two families. That is amazing. Now it's probably an Airbnb. I know. <laughs> um, what was the attitude towards... Uh, discrimination in your house like I guess I'm sort of wondering at what point did you realize that you weren't the same as a lot of people around you and and you know in what ways did your parents attitudes influence that yeah I you know I would it would be wonderful to say or I guess not wonderful but it would be very stereotypical to say I suffered all this discrimination being Mexican but that wasn't the case I mean when I was going Growing up, it was interesting because like every class, every class I'd move up, more Mexican kids would be in the classes behind me and all the higher classes. So when I was in kindergarten, the sixth grade at Thomas Jefferson Elementary was probably mostly white by then. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I got to sixth grade at a whole other school, it was like all Mexican by then. So I never really suffered discrimination for being Mexican. I realized that. I realized that, you know, people didn't like Mexicans. I didn't realize that really until Proposition 187 hit in, oh, yeah. Yeah, in California. That was 1994. And I just remember thinking, like, what's wrong with illegal immigrants? My dad's, you know, undocumented. All my uncles are. And, like, they're the hardest working people I know. And they all ended up becoming American citizens. They all had their factory jobs. And us kids, we were the ones who were supposed to go to college. So I never really got that. I still really fundamentally don't. Part of me, I get it, fear of the unknown, but at the same mm-hmm. time, like, if you know these people, like, what's your issue? But again, I never suffered that discrimination. I think one right. time somebody yelled at me, 187, but I thought it was, you know, murder code because I was into, <laughs> you know, Tupac and Dre and those folks. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? What song? That was a good song. Um, so you – and you've said you, that you were a nerd – but you did not get good grades, right? So do you, by nerd, do you mean awkward or do you mean like into nerd culture? No, no, none of that. I, I, If people ask me to define myself, it's a weird term, but I guess I'll call myself a humanities nerd. I just <laughs> – which makes sense now that I'm a reporter, but I was <laughs> – I mean, I was, and that, that's the one thing. I never suffered discrimination for being Mexican. If I suffered any racial discrimination, it was from other Mexicans saying I wasn't Mexican enough uh-huh. as a pocho. But I suffered, you know, I suffered discrimination only for being a nerd. And both the Mexicans and the white kids got at me for being a nerd. But no, I was that type of nerd. And there's, and you, and, and uh, you're, you're, beyond nerd like super super smart i'm sure you got your grades right maybe um i i did i wasn't straight a student but i I was a good student you were a good student i was not a good student so but i was that type of nerd would never do their homework would always talk in class would always talk back to the teacher i remember my sophomore year uh my english teacher actually made me stand in the corner oh really like literally made me stand in the corner with you know behind my back retro it was so retro (laughs) and then after that they moved me out so i could be uh in the english i was in honors english but they moved me out so i could be in the cholo english class (laughs) like it was all gang members uh the stoners and we got along fine but then all these years later the the teacher mrs patzel she came to me and apologized to me at a book signing and she's like you're such an amazing student but you just talked so much i had to show an example and of course you didn't learn that example (laughs) so so get a's in the test get c's and d's i ended up graduating i think it was like 2.4 gpa Mm -hmm. like barely but you know all these years later i guess it makes sense i was going to be a writer because i always love to read 
I would always get A's on essays. I knew how to write. I always tell people that you know my you know I never had any aspirations to be a writer, but my my favorite story in terms of like future Gustavo was at Sycamore Junior High in Anaheim. There was a spe- there was a contest. Like they gave you a setup, and the setup was that this nerd had been bullied for all you know all the all, all this year by this bully, and then finally the nerd got his revenge by somehow stuffing the bully into a locker. So then the prompt was, "What's next? What's going to follow next?" So. Everyone wrote all these stories. I ended up winning. It was like a school-wide contest. But it turns out I ended up winning because I was the only one who had the scenario that the bully murdered the nerd. <laughs> Nowadays, hey, they're going to send me off to Columbine or you know some psychiatric ward. But to me, it made complete sense. You have a bully who's going to be enraged. He's right. going to try to get his full revenge on this poor nerd. So in my, in the, in, you know, my story, the bully was working class, ended up stealing a gun from his dad shot the nerd but since i'm also catholic and i believe in retribution it was an old gun so after he shot the first shot at the nerd the second shot blew up the gun and killed the bully as well perfect (laughs) um what made you decide that to uh, so to you that is what the bully would have done it makes sense i mean again just i'm all being Catholic, it's all about black and white, Manichaean, just, you know, battle between good and evil. And to me, the bully epitomized evil. So, of course, he was going to go after this nerd by killing the poor guy. Mm-hmm. And But, of course, for me, the, the, the bully was not going to be able to succeed. So his, his – and then I remember at the end, I mean, I have to find that essay. I'm sure it's in some – it's probably in my uh, FOIA or, you know, my FBI file somewhere. <laughs> but I remember at the end saying specifically, this bully was going to rot in hell. And – I'm sorry to push you on this, no, but I please. ask the tough questions. I'm unclear how you were a nerd. Because, well, let's see, the popular... Or in what way you mean nerd? I wore glasses, which back then was okay. a mark of death. Sure. I love to read. There you go. Um, You know, what, I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what, what more nerdy can you get? That was pretty nerdy. I think the description of you as... Being a loudmouth mm-hmm. to me doesn't seem like a nerd. But. No, so uh, yeah, you know, I see what you're saying. I mean, I was a, sp- a special type of nerd, if you will. <laughs> okay. Like the nerds did not like me either. I did. did you ever have? Were you a, um, kind of a? Were you an outcast? No, I mean, I always had my circle of friends. That's the most important thing. I hung out with my cousins, my best friend since eighth grade, Art Marmolejo, who listens, by the way. So oh, he hi, loves Art. It. Hi, Art. <laughs> um, he, you know, he's still my best friend to this day. So we always had our little group and we were like a weird, it was a, it was a group, I want to say outcast, but misfits. Okay. A group of misfits. So like I could easily go between the nerds and the stoners and the band geeks and the rebels and like the popular kids and the jocks. But I, like I could be hanging out with them and talking to them, mm-hmm. but I never like my group was always that. Like, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Did you guys ever have something called Kiwanis Bowl in high school? We had the Ki- Kiwanis Club. Okay, there was Kiwanis Club. So the Kiwanis Bowl was basically like high school Jeopardy. So of course, oh my god, I wish we had that. So we had that. By and I, you know, I never that that was the only thing I ever uh, bothered with in high school, Kiwanis Bowl, because I always loved Jeopardy. I'm a nerd. I remember sophomore year, I you know the, they would. I mean, high schools are insane. They would parade us for our high school, and we'd able to see these uh, teams with trivia going at each other. So I kept yelling out the answers. So I got kicked out of the auditorium. <laughs> but eventually, I'm like, oh, I could kick these guys' ass. Like, 
whatever, let's do it. So junior year, I got my team. We killed everyone. And then senior year, all the nerds got together in an effort to try to beat my team, which was really me and a bunch of warm bodies and art, <laughs> by the way. And we still beat the nerds. So even the nerds didn't like me. <laughs> um, you said that you are Catholic, mm-hmm. which actually in your book, you make a pedophile remark. Oh, many pedophile remarks. Yeah. So I... Um, what is your relationship with Catholicism now? Uh, I sure as hell am not going to know church anymore because <laughs> one of the things that I ended up doing at the OC Weekly, you know, one of the proudest things I'm, one of the things I'm proudest of is covering the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. And I, I, you know, this is a story I also tell as well. Like Will Swaim, he came to me and said, "Hey, this is about fall of 2003." He says. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with the Catholic Church sex, sex abuse scandal. You should take it on. And I remember telling him, I can't do it. I'm practicing Catholic. I think it will be a conflict of interest, and I can't possibly see myself going against my church. And he said, think about it. So, Oh, classic Will. Think about it. <laughs> Let's consider That's it. So Will. <laughs> so afterwards, I w- got home. I prayed on it. I said, literally, God, give me the guidance, blah, 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 blah. The next day, a woman comes up to the in the old office. We're talking about the Calmus office, the one that you're that, the one you that I worked at. in yeah. exactly. So I get a call from reception. Hey, someone's here to see you. I'm like, that's interesting. Uh, you know, no one's called. Yeah, me. it's not you. People don't usually drop by to see you, and if they do, they're scary. Subpoena. <laughs> the, the, and the last time that happened, literally somebody handed me a subpoena. And after that, we told the receptionist, even if Gustav was here, he's not here. <laughs> but I took this call and it was a woman. It turns out to be a sex abuse survivor. She's like, you don't know me, but I'm a fan of your work. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. Uh, the bishops have been – and police and the DA have been covering up pedophile priests in Orange County for decades. Here. Here's some reading material. Gives me a pile. Jeez. like. God, really thick like, like nine inch thick humongous stack and it just told you the whole story so to me that was a sign from god it's like okay i'm taking it on but you what what i end up learning is that you know if you don't believe that's fine if you do if you do believe that's fine i do believe i don't think catholicism is a one true religion i mean in which some people say well that means you're not a catholic i'm like fuck you i could believe whatever i want so but for me it's not so much the faith faith is not predicated on the men and really the men who run it. They're just humans and they're morons and they uh, pervert and destroy what's a very beautiful thing that means to a lot of people. That means a lot to a lot of people. So it sucks that you know I, with Catholicism, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of good in there. It really definitely showed me my sort of moral compass in terms of what's right and what's wrong. So, but I I can't I cannot possibly go to church in an institution that protected all these pedophile priests who. We're going after it's 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 not so much the crime that bothers me because pedophilia is going to occur in all sectors of society. But it's that these men said they were men of God. They used that cloak, and yet they not only did not report these priests to the police, but moved them mm-hmm. to Mexican parishes to the poorest the people that they knew no one would ever say anything about that just kills me to this day though if people want to be catholic i tell i tell them go to the catholic worker the catholic worker are basically communist catholics and they're just amazing amazing people in orange county it'd be dwight and leah smith just truly secular saints when you got the subpoena what was that for (laughs) that was that was a funny story that was um, you know i had done a story um, in the good old days. So it was, it was 2002. It was a protest. It was, uh, you know, Anaheim was in the news. Uh, what was it? They wanted to, 
They wanted to rescind a program that would allow the police department to be able to identify undocumented folks and basically deport them immediately, something like that. So they Mm -hmm. wanted to rescind that. So this anti-immigrant group comes to have a protest outside of City Hall. Then the, you know, pro-immigrant groups were going to be there to protest them. But they were from like basically Trotskyites, Leninists, total leftist radical anarchists. And then across the street was a more moderate group protesting both of those groups. (laughs) Protest upon protest upon protest. So I go there covering it. Of course, the first thing that happens, a fight, just a brawl breaks out there. Complete chaos. Um, so the right wing, the, the anti-immigrant folks, they sued the city of Anaheim saying that your police department stood there and did nothing. They were basically, uh, collab, you know, they were collaborators with these anarchist machistas types. And so they, they put this lawsuit against the city of Anaheim. And then the lawyer said, we know you were there. We know you took pictures. We want those pictures. And I told them, like, slag off. There's no way I will ever give you these pictures. No. So I go back to my desk, you know, a couple, like a week later, receptionist, Gustavo, you have someone for you. Okay, cool. Boom. I'm like, uh, I go to Will, what's a subpoena? He's like, okay, you're going to have to talk to our lawyer now. And <laughs> they're going to have a lot of questions for you. He's like, we're going to stand by you. We're not, And I wasn't even a staff writer. I was still a freelancer at the time. So wait, though, you did not want to... The anti-immigrant people were suing the cops. Uh, yes. And the cops want... So weren't... In theory, weren't you more on the cop side than the other side? In this case, yes. But no, I mean, I was there on the side of the truth. And yeah, the police officers stood there and did nothing. But, you know, but they were not helping out the anti-immigrant people because the anti-immigrant people were walloping a whole bunch of Mexicans. They got ugly on both sides. But they were basically saying that the cops were protecting the Mexicans and that wasn't the case. And I reported that initially, but what uh, what the anti-immigrant side said was that I had proof that the cops were protecting the Mexicans, so they wanted the pictures. Oh, they wanted the, I yeah. thought the cops wanted the no, pictures. No, no, they no. wanted the pictures. Yeah, the the, the, cop, oh, yeah, the anti-immigrant yeah, side want yeah, fuck the police. <laughs> Uh, the, no, the anti-immigrant side wanted gotcha. those pictures. So we ended up winning the subpoena because after I saw the pictures, I'm like, oh, wait, this is all pictures of these anti-immigrant lunatics beating up Mexicans, like literally with sticks. Jesus. So I told Will, why don't we print these pictures and then we could say, here's your subpoena. Screw you. Boom. So, yeah. So you did. I well, did. So good. Okay. So high school, um, graduate, you graduate high school and then what'd you do? Go colonists. I, because my grades were so bad, I had to end up going to Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa. And we forgot to say, so when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to be in a career that would involve me reading a lot. And that was about it. But all of that changed when Pulp Fiction came mm. on. And you, of course, you were around when Pulp Fiction was there. Cause I usually tell this story to high school kids. So they've seen Pulp Fiction, but they don't. They can never feel what a revolution that film was to come out on the screen. So Art and I, we go out, we see Pulp Fiction at the theater, and we loved it so much that we ended up getting a pirateria version, a pirated copy somewhere in East Los Angeles. We ended up playing that tape about 50 times until it finally broke. (laughs) And from there on, we're like, we're going to be filmmakers. So I ended up going to Orange Coast College, which has an What what was it? Um about that film in particular like what grabbed you about it the dialogue the action how funny it was uh you know it was just such a you could tell with and now of course tarantino's my third favorite director after kubrick and uh, billy wilder then it's not you know uh, tarantino he is brilliant and he, i mean you want to talk about nerds he's a movie nerd he so you could see all these pasti- it was like he was, he was doing all these pastiches these homages mm-hmm. just amazing stuff but for me it was that dialogue i'm like 
people could say stuff like that, like so fast and sharp witted. And then, of course, there was a, you know, later on, I learned it was Steve Buscemi, but then there was a cameo by Buddy Holly. I was born on the day the music died. Mm. So Buddy Holly has always been very special to me and also Richie Valens. Big Bopper, eh, what are you going to do? But um, I know it's so horrible to say. And of course, the pilot who no one, everyone always forgets his name. I didn't even know there was one. <laughs> That's so sad. That is just so sad. But Buddy Holly, and so seeing Buddy Holly, like, oh my God, like, there's a cafe. This guy is thinking up of this cafe where people are dressed up like Mammy Van Doren and James Mansfield. And then all of a sudden, here you have Buddy Holly himself. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just so revolutionary. Of course, later on, you realize that it was a revolution. So after that, I thought, I want to make films just like Tarantino, but involve Mexican characters into it. You sort of tell the Mexican point of view. So yeah, we ended up going to Orange Coast College. There, finally, I realized like I got to boost my grades up if I ever want to get into UCLA. Because for me, the goal was to get into UCLA film school so busted my grades up couldn't like i wasn't accepted to ucla so i ended up going to chapman university still majoring in film mm-hmm. um and how long were you at chapman so i went to occ for two years and i went to chapman university for two years but then quickly and i always tell people because now chapman is a freaking rich ass school they have so yeah. much money not when i was there and all that money started coming in the year after i graduated but i realized quickly there because i had to also work full-time because my mom had gotten laid off in my senior year after 35 years of service there they ended up giving her as a severance package a windbreaker <laughs> absolutely true Thoughtful. sorry i know i still have that windbreaker too i still wear it from time to time so where you were working full-time and helping out your family. Right? Yeah. So, Where were you working? Um, so I, my first real job, I mean, starting at age nine, I worked with my dad. He's a truck driver. So he'd sneak me into the ports of Long Beach and San Pedro to strap down a flatbed. So, you know, he, he was, he was never like, we're not, I'm not talking about a long haul driver, not cross country. He was always local. Mm-hmm. He would never go further north than Thousand Oaks and further south in Oceanside. Cause, you know, as he told me, he wanted to go back home to his family, which is very sweet of him. But like, he'd get me there and he'd usually drive what's called flatbeds. So flatbeds are not the containers, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the containers that you see at ports. This is just a flatbed truck on which is pipe wood any number you know uh packets any number of cargo and you have to strap them down by winching them together so it was my job he'd get me up at three in the morning sneak me in imagine 55 degrees in the morning you're like 10 years old you're like i don't want to do this i want to be in bed wear gloves and just you know winch it down as much as possible but from there you know it was my work ethic i that's where i got my work ethic mm-hmm. from so i continued that all the way up to high school until i finally got a full-time job my first full-time job was being they don't exist anymore but have you ever heard well you know from orange county you remember bullwinkles Yes. Yeah. So it was basically the uh, that sort of said. Do you remember the Family Fun Center? Yes. Wait, Family Fun Center. That's where they had miniature golf. Yes. Um, slick track. Uh huh. Go karts. Right? And so, there was something else there. Bumper boats, maybe. Yes. Oh my God, I haven't <laughs> thought of fam. Wasn't it in Fountain Valley? There was one in Fountain I, we, Valley. I used to love Family Fun Center. So I ended up at the Family Fun Center in Anaheim. That no longer exists. That. I think the one in Fountain Valley is now a Bullwinkles because okay. Bullwinkles ended up buying the chain. But so I worked there for a couple of years. But when I was at Chapman and when I, yeah, when I started at the OC Weekly, when I first I, when I first got in contact with them, I was working just as a data monkey. You know, like it was a collection. What data are they monkeying there? <laughs> it was a collection agency for Toyota. Oh, I thought you meant at Family Fun Center. No, 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 no. I ended up leaving Family Fun Center once I got into Chapman because I needed something more flexible and, and, and I needed more money to help out my but, parents. But what, at Family Fun Center, what did you do? 
Oh God, I was, so I started off as a go-kart attendant. I eventually became what's called the lead rover, which uh, basically meant I would be filled in whatever. But of course we, uh, my cousin, so it was me and another cousin and Art. Then we had another cousin, my cousin Victor worked with me. His brother Placido worked across the way at Camelot. That's the place that still exists off the mm-hmm. 91 with yeah. all the golf courses. We had a fucking mafia there. <laughs> we were extorting. We were, we would get all these tokens and sell them to people. Like get, say a bucket of tokens here. Give me 10 bucks for them. It's like a hundred dollars worth of tokens. I wondered how people did all that. Oh mm. God. Get free food. It was a total mafia. But it's funny because you said earlier about people not liking me initially at OC Weekly because I worked so hard. The same thing happened to me at Family Fun Center. People <laughs> did not like me because I was working too hard because when they got a call, when I would get a call to go service something, I would run instead of walk out there. Eventually, I ended up quitting Family Fun Center actually because there was – it got so bad that they actually broke into my car and stuffed my car full of trash. Because Who was this? Oh, Your my cousins? fellow workers. No, my fellow coworkers. <laughs> my cousins were gone by then. Yeah. My fellow coworkers. They were they accused me of snitching on them for not uh Jeez. working hard, which wasn't wasn't true at all. But it came out, oh, we don't like you because you work too hard. So I'm like, okay, I don't need this. Bye bye. Yeah. Became a data monkey. Um <laughs> when when I was a data monkey for this company in Toyo- that worked for Toyota, they would just give me their, you know, I'd have to type in, find credit reports, type in all their information. It was just, you know, simple crap. Right. Man, all this talk of industriousness is making me hungry. <laughs> you know what you guys need? And uh, what I have is Blue Apron. Are you familiar with Blue Apron? Mm. They are awesome. They send you everything you need to make a delicious home-cooked meal. Uh, and they include a recipe card, and it breaks down how to to make the meal with pictures. So whether you're a novice cook or you know a really accomplished chef... It's all right there for you. You don't have to do that thing where you're like, I want to make something, but I have to go to the store and I don't know how much of everything I have to buy. And now I have all these leftovers and I don't, do I, do I need one bunch or four bunches of chervils? <laughs> Chervil. Does chervil even come in a bunch? You don't even have to deal with that. They take all the guesswork out of it. It's less than $10 a meal. Each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like vegetable chili with all the fixins, crispy tortilla strips, avocado, cheddar, sour cream, chicken fried chicken with collard greens and homemade ranch, fontina and preserved Meyer lemon grilled cheese sandwiches on rye with endive mint and clementine salad with sherry honey vinaigrette. These are just a few of the things. Cook with ingredients that you've never used before. Recipes are between 500 and 700 calories per portion. Delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash allison. That's blueapron.com slash allison. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, so uh, you, you were... You were a data monkey, and you were going to Chapman, and then then what happened? Because at some point, you did not continue pursuing the film dream, and you switched to journalism. So what ended up happening when I was at Chapman was I realized that I was not going to make it in Hollywood. I wasn't. Like, I'd have to get an in- unpaid internship for years and you know pray something would break my way so but i loved film a lot so i said instead of doing film production i'll just get into film studies and the film studies department at chapman still remains such an afterthought it's so sad like when i graduated there was like oh let's just say 250 graduates from the film the program film production only three of us were film studies do you i i love being a nerd i guess and the future of film studies would now were you doing it just 
because you had a passion for it or the idea being that you could go into academics? I actually, my goal then, like I, I love film. I still love film to this day, although it's uh, my only regret about journalism and where I'm at today is that I don't have the time to watch as many movies mm. as I used to. I just don't have the time. Uh, if I, you've put me in the theater, like, I'll go to sleep almost immediately. <laughs> Although the last film, I, I'll, I'll always make time for Tarantino. So I saw Hateful Eight. Oh, God, it was amazing. But um, no, I, I decided to get into film studies because I've always loved history. And I figured, hey, a job where I would read books, maybe write some, and then you know watch films, that would be great. And then I remember going on a field trip my junior year to the Warner Brothers archives. And I just fell in love. I had always loved Warner Brothers from the cartoons to the films. Like Warner and... For me, I've always loved institutions that have a story, that are really like a family, like Warner Brothers. You could say immediately, I like historic Warner Brothers. That was like the, the films for the working class. Edward G. Robinson, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, the wisecrackers of, you know, Bugs Bunny, like Marx Brothers. All, like they had a definitely, they were sort of the rebels of the classical studio system. And then going there to the film archives, you know, there were people there who had been working at Warner Brothers for 60 years at that point. So I'm like, I want to be a, an archivist for the Warner Brothers library. Or the then the other option was we also took a field trip to the Academy of Motion Pictures, Art, and Sciences. The people do the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Their library, I think it's it's off of Fairfax. I think it's like this old church. And again, just seeing like these nice people helping you out. And I've always I've always uh, not had a thing for librarians because I never dated a librarian. I I was close once though, but I, I always appreciate librarians. They are the most helpful people in the world. I mean, that's literally their job. We are here to help you. And to me, I just thought that was awesome. So They're like I, accessible docents. <laughs> exactly. Accessible marmish docents. Yeah. Exa- more marmish even than a uh, school marmish than, uh, than the regular docent. So my senior year, I'm like, okay, I just, I guess, or, you know, junior year, I thought I'll just get into film studies. Hopefully, you know, how do I get there though? So I'm like, I'll just apply to grad school at UCLA as well. And so the, all of that would have been – I graduated from school 2001, but still my junior year, that's when I discovered OC Weekly. And then when I discovered OC Weekly, pfft, all my plans, my entire life, out the window. So how did that all happen? Oh, my God. Okay. So I – well, so here's here's the part that we sort of know. Um, OC Weekly printed a satirical piece – about the f- like five most important Latinos in Orange County. Five Latinos we really like. And and what was the story with them? Were they not actually Latino? <laughs> there was a couple of Latinos who were self-hating Latinos. Like, you know, t- like I'm don't call me Mexican, I'm Spanish. Mm-hmm. Like I don't teach my children Spanish. They have to, you know, they have to learn that at, you know, at college or something. Just right. self-loathing horrible people. And then there was also other just straight up racists. And and I, I had never heard of OC Weekly before. And again, going back in retrospect, I had always read newspapers but only the sports section. So I would always steal the Orange County Register and the LA Times mm-hmm. or I'd hop the fence and go buy them and throw everything Which, away. Which for anyone not not from Orange County uh, which is most of my listeners, um, Orange County Register, LA Times, like very middle of the road, straight ahead, what you'd expect from a newspaper versus OC Weekly, a ton of voice. Oh, yeah. A oh, ton of attitude. The LA Times was has always been a good paper, like, you know, more money, more of a worldview. Orange County Register is just hack. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, what what did they? What, what's the saying? I, I would always think the register. They would always just love to put stories about people with their puppies on the cover and then look or on the front page. Nothing wrong with puppies. Yeah. Nothing wrong with Excuse people me. with puppies. I know exactly. <laughs> uh, but like it was just fluff journalism. Yeah. And of course, the most important thing, of course, the register was just rabidly right wing. Yeah. They'd have 
readers who'd say slavery was a good thing. So I don't know why African Americans are so upset about living in the oh, United States. Oh, Orange County. Oh, stay classy, <laughs> OC. But so, and I would also love to read Sports Illustrated. In eighth grade, I remember my uh, English teacher, Mrs. Stike Leather, which I would always say Strike Leather because it just seems natural instead of Stike Leather. She would give me the Sports Illustrated that her husband would finish reading and give them to me because she knew I couldn't afford a subscription. So I basically have all the sports world from 1991 to 1993 memorized in my mind because <laughs> I would read these stories again and again and again. Mm-hmm. But OC Weekly had never heard of it. Oh, and then the other important thing, Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah. Mad Magazine. I grew up with that. I had a subscription. You want to talk about being a principled idiot? I stopped subscribing to them once they started accepting ads in Mad Magazine. <laughs> After that, I'm like, I'm not going to subscribe to it anymore because Bill Gaines would have never allowed this, the founder of MAD. But OC Weekly, I discovered in a trash can. I was working on political campaign for a politician who later on I would just eviscerate. Claudia Alvarez, you can rot in hell even though you're still alive. Uh, you're just so bad. I'm, and she's not cool, so she's not listening, of course. But um, screw her. Yeah. But I, I only have cool listeners. Exactly. My mom thinks I'm cool. Um, <laughs> but I found the OC Weekly in the trash can. I picked up the copy, and it was an April Fool's issue. It was basically uh, OC Weekly's version of The Onion back when no one knew what The Onion was. Right. But the OC Weekly did. And I just remember reading it and just laughing. All the stories were just hilarious. I'm like, what newspaper can get away with this crap? And then that Five Latinos We Really Like, I read it and I laughed. But I also laughed because I knew that a lot of people weren't going to get the joke. I knew what The Onion was at that point, so I thought it was a brilliant satire of The Onion. But I'm like, there's going to be a lot of people upset at – OC Weekly for this. And I looked at the masthead. No, not a single Latino last name. No, nothing. That was all white names. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan Sang was like the only non-white person writing for, oh, Vu Win. Vu Win was there as well at that time. But that was it. No Latino. So I'm like, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to pretend to be one of these angry activists. And let's see if the OC Weekly falls for it. And I don't know if Will Swain fell for it, but he published my letter. My letter, you read it now, is so over the top. It was like, I can't believe you would write this, especially since you didn't include Barbara Coe. Barbara Coe is this noxious, horrific woman. I, I compared her to a living cigarette because that's what she was, withered, <laughs> always smoking tobacco, like ended up dying of lung cancer or didn't something. Didn't she publish Orange Coast magazine? No, 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 no. Who am no. I thinking of? I would like to rescind that comment <laughs> because Orange Coast Magazine is who made me this, the giant poster of me that I hang in here, which is super. Oh, that's an awesome ridiculous. one. It's beautiful. It, thank you. I Thank you. It's ridiculous that there's a big picture of me in the studio here, but that's beside the point. <laughs> who am I? I don't, I'm thinking Coe? of Ruth Coe. Ruth Coe. Yeah, Coe. Yeah. Coe, yeah, yeah. So wait, I, who's Barbara Coe? Barbara Coe was this woman who ran this hate group called the California Coalition for Immigration Reform. This okay. little group created 187, the Minuteman Project, the whole birther conspiracy. Gotcha. Yes. Now it's coming back. Exactly. So I said, you know, if you don't put Barbara Coe in, if you don't apologize to us Mexicans who worship her, I'm going to stage a hunger strike outside of your office. Again, way over the top, not exactly funny. But they ran it, the weekly ran it right alongside a Chicano studies professor who really was upset at that joke. And I remember thinking, aha, OC Weekly fell for it. So I decided to email Will and say, hey, by the way, ha ha, I was joking, ha 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 ha. He's like, oh yeah, cool, thanks. <laughs> and like, like, not dismissive, but like, hey, right. you know, cool. And then I had seen him on KOCE. Oh which, yeah, he used to, the real orange. Yeah, the real orange, <laughs> which I'm sure had an audience about 
10 people, uh-huh. probably. And Real Orange was just one of these public affairs shows. So Will was there. I had just seen him. I had not known who he was. But I remember saying, oh, Will Swaim, that's the same guy. So I, And he just eviscerated some Republican. So I emailed him back and saying, hey, I saw you in Real Orange. You did a good job. And I'll always remember his email because this was dismissive. Thanks for the thanks. <laughs> that's... <laughs> nothing against you well of course but i and i wasn't offended but i'm like wow that was really curt and short uh-huh. i just said a nice thing to you but then i thanks emailed for the thanks. thanks for the thanks <laughs> then i emailed him because again remember i was working on this political campaign and i emailed him and say hey how can i get you guys to cover this candidate and then he said well you know if you have any story ideas i could connect you to one of my reporters nick scow so we traded emails Nick uh, was, you know, investigative reporter for them for the weekly at the time. So he said, uh, "Let's meet at the old. Uh, did you do you remember the old Steamers Cafe in Fullerton? Not Steamers. No, 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 no. The Hub. Yes, the Hub. Wait, the Hub Cafe. The Hub Cafe. Yes, yes. I just recently was trying to remember the name of it. It is now the Slide Bar. Slide Bar right? Cafe. Yeah, owned by uh, Jeremy Popoff of, of Lit, Lit, who I wrote the co- cover story on for the OC Weekly. So it's all." Small world. Yeah, I loved the hub. Yeah, a classic hippie coffee place ended up becoming a rock and roll bar with surprisingly good food, by the way. Um, But we met, you know, I was still a data monkey. I met Nick. I mispronounced his name like everyone else does. Nick Shao. It looks like, yeah, or Shoe. Or Shoe. No, it was Shoe. It was Shoe. Nick Shoe. He's like, (laughs) it's Scow. Okay. So we start talking, and then the article that I had originally pitched. It wasn't going to work out, but then he started talking to me. He's like, wow, you have a lot of good ideas. And so I gave him another story idea. He's like, I'm going to go back to my editor, and I'll see what he says. And and Will liked the idea. And then I gave him another idea. I said, look, where where I'm from in Mexico, there's like over a thousand of us from this little village all living in Anaheim. You should do a story about that. I could get you in contact with my aunts and uncles and all this. And – Nick liked the idea as well, and then Will also liked the idea. So this is all, let's say, April Fool's 2000, flash forward to November 2000, right after the you know the Bush stealing the election. So eventually, along that way, I kept feeding story ideas to Nick. I start talking to him. I start like meeting with him for lunch on a regular basis, and I keep emailing Will, emailing Will, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, I think I bugged him so much with all these great – all my ideas, by the way. Most of them were being made into stories. So finally, he said – like I pitched him a story like, hey, Will, like they're using the ghost of Pete Wilson, the former Republican governor of California. The Democratic Party is using Pete Wilson to try to scare Mexicans into voting Democrat because I saw this flyer and I had heard on the Spanish-language radio ad. So Will said, why don't you do it? And I said, I'm not a reporter – but he's like, no, no, you, you just think of it as an academic paper. By now it's my the fall of my senior year, he said. Think of it as an academic paper. Analyze the piece. Tell us what's it about and whatnot. So I wrote the story. Then he's like, interview someone else. He, of course, rewrote the lead, which he should have because the read was – I mean imagine a guy with no experience in journalism uh, writing, you know, writing this uh, story. He liked it. I got paid 100 bucks for it. It got published the same week that the story about – the village where mm. I'm from got published. I'm like, this is really cool. So I finally said, hey, Will, we've never talked. I'd like to talk to you and thank you over the phone. So I call him up and, you know, God bless Will, very Irvine to the core, very <laughs> petition. He's like, hola, amigo. Oh, my you God. Know, total stereotype of a white guy talking to a Mexican for the first time in his life. 
It's like, hola, amigo. Like, <laughs> you were very well spoken and whatnot. I'm like, all right, fine. Then it finally he asked me, like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 21 years old. He's like, then that's when I think he stopped. He's like, oh my God, you write like a 36 year old. You, <laughs> it, but it was a compliment. He was saying, yeah. like, you're so learned and you have like this depth to the story ideas and even how you write that like i think you're awesome i'm like oh cool thanks like i have a story idea for you if you want to do it i'm like well okay what is it he's like so i've we've been hearing at the weekly that there's these lucha libre matches mexican wrestling they're happening it in anaheim at the indoor swap meet but i don't have anyone who speaks spanish on staff what nick kind of knew but he was Mm -hmm. more into political corruption then so he said would you like to cover i'm like oh that'd be cool like I go there every once in a while. So he's like, but then I tell him like, well, how do I do a story? He's like, well, go there, describe the action, try to talk to a couple of people and go. So I went there, I wrote something, he liked it. And he said, and then I told him, you should really give this to someone else who could write a big story because this deserves a big story. It's a, it's a fun place to be. And there's all this politi- these political undertones. You'd have like white wrestlers, it's all Mexican, so white wrestlers going in telling everyone, I'm going to deport all of you, <laughs> you bunch of beaners, and like little grandmas throwing uh, uh, beer cans into the ring and saying, pinche puto pendejo, like fucking faggot asshole. Nice grandma with kids, everyone yelling <laughs> all this. Oh, it was the racial dynamics there were amazing. So Will said, no, you were there. You started the story. Go ahead and do this cover. If you want to, if we're going to make it longer, go talk to the owner of this enterprise. Go do, you know, just do a little bit more coverage. So I, so I go there. I, I go there and I write it. He rewrites the lead again, <laughs> but it turns out into a cover story. And then at that point, he had told me, you know, if you're interested in doing a food review, like, what would you be interested in? It's like, oh, and I told him there's He's this like, really- tacos or burritos? No, no, he didn't go that far. But I'm like, there's this really good Thai restaurant in Anaheim. He's like, oh, cool. We don't do enough Thai food. So my very first cover story gets published on the week of my birthday when I'm 22 years old. And also that same issue, I had my food review. So that set the template for me at the OC Weekly right there. Not only is Gustavo going to get published, but he's going to get published a lot. A lot, non-stop yeah. Non-stop writing. And by then, I mean, I ended up getting, I think, $500. No, less than that for the cover. I have the check somewhere, maybe $300, which whatever. For me, it was like, oh, my God, you can mm-hmm. get paid for this. By then, it's already. I had already been accepted to UCLA for uh, graduate school in Latin American studies because in my mind, I was like, I'm still going to do this film thing, film studies but i'll specialize in latin american film but by then i'm like i kind of like this journalism i want to continue doing this journalism and that sort of my whole life exploded at that point Mm -hmm. wow among many times speaking of things exploding let's talk about the situation where uh where maybe your face has broken out that was a real (laughs) rough segue i I know i loved it adult acne or even even if you're not an adult teen acne just acne is uh is very unpleasant and inconvenient when you're dealing with it and maybe you don't have time to go to a dermatologist to get prescription acne medication or maybe you cannot afford to do that curology is here to help you because they have revolutionized access to prescription skincare you just take five minutes You can complete a profile at Curology.com and you upload pictures of your skin. You get paired online with a licensed medical professional who will assess your skin and prescribe the right mix of acne-fighting ingredients for you. Your prescription is shipped straight to you. So this is um, 
I always talk, I, I love companies that come along and disrupt the way that the, the particular industry has always done business. So here's this company, Curology. They are making it so much easier and so much more affordable to get prescription, uh, prescription skincare stuff right to you. Today, my listeners get their first month of customized prescription acne treatment free when they go to Curology.com and enter my code best friend in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. You have nothing to lose. That's 30 full days on the on your path to clear skin free. That's Curology.com, C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y.com and my code best friend. Okay, so you still wanted to go to UCLA and do Latino. Oh wait, no, no, no. We already we got to the point where now it's just straight ahead journalism. Kind of, kind okay. of. So you know, I gra- ended up graduating from Chapman. I had a party. Will you know? Eventually, I started. I, I, I got the journalism bug in two yeah in two thousand and one. Right when I'm about to graduate, so I started you know immediately pitching even more stories, more stories, more stories, and that's when Will really started to put the you know the almost how do you say the screws? Yes, 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 screws. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, eh, what is that? Yeah, screws on me, and he started saying, "Yo, this story sucks. This story's bad. This is not good. This is not bad." And, and my favorite. How insult- did you feel about that? Were I you- loved it. Really? No, no, no. I loved it. I I always tell this to journalism students or just r- young writers in general. I always tell them. Connect yourself with someone that you know is smarter than you and that also cares about you because you will be uh, forever grateful for them. And I thought immediately to this day, I, I think Will is a genius. Will he is- really cultivated and helped groom young writers and took an interest in their writing. And I remember, and sometimes it would sometimes it would get to the point where you're like, "Dude, <laughs> leave me alone," <laughs> um, because he was. He always wanted to know, like, what do you think of the paper? What do you think of this? What do you think oh, of yeah. that? And like, he took it so seriously that it was it it, it could it could be a little in, it could be intense. He was an, he's an intense yeah. guy, but I remember Steve Lowry saying because I was young, very sure. young then, you know. I remember him saying to to more than just me, like, you will never have a boss like Will never. ever again. And it's I don't think I ever have. No. No, it's true. It was it was a very unique, special time. It is a special place, the weekly. No, and so a lot of young writers. If the, so, his best insult he ever gave me is like, "I'd rather lick a dog's ass <laughs> than print your story in my paper." <laughs> but I love, I thrive on criticism. I love criticism, especially again if it's criticism from someone that I know is better than me. Right. I will take it. And I know I knew Will and everyone on the staff was better than me, so I would tell Will, "Okay." Tell me, show me how to become a better writer. Sit me down, pull out that red pen, show me these things. And it wasn't, I mean, Will, of course, was a main one, but everyone there, Steve Lowry, for instance, I'll never forget him. He showed me the, he showed me the importance of knowing what words actually mean. And, <laughs> and, and, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but the example was, you know, I said something had countless. And he's like, no, you mean numerous. There's a difference between numerous and countless. Countless means you can't count. Numerous means you can count. You can count eventually all the sand, all the grains of sand on the beach. Mm-hmm. It would take you forever, but they're numerous. Countless is infinity. Right. So everyone there, yeah. yeah, everyone on staff, you know, from the lowest to the highest, all had their little like lessons. Anna Barr, if you remember her, yes, I totally yeah. do. And calendar editor, yeah, calendar editor, which I have not seen again. Probably she was there a little bit after you, but she like little things that they would teach me, and I would just absorb mm-hmm. it like a sponge. So I think probably around two thousand and two. 
Yeah, it would have been right after my cover story because after my cover story, I told Will, I want to meet you. We have never met before. I want to shake your hand. You know, old school Mexican that way, I guess. That thank, you know, gratitude and shake someone's hand. So that's when he took me into the office and that's when, you know, the, the person said that little racist comment about me. That would have been 2001. Sorry, 2001. Graduated from college, but by then I had, gra- you know, I had already been accepted to UCLA. And I still thought I wanted to get into academia, at least get my master's degree. So 2001, you know, then 9-11 happens, of course. Uh, but, but still, I'm like, okay, I'll be in academia. And I'll, I'll write a couple of articles in journalism, maybe here and there. And then I just had the beginning of 2002, I had this horrible – I was lucky in college because all my professors were good, good to great. I never had a bad one except one, and that was at UCLA, and he's a notoriously – full of himself guy. But I just remember this guy. We had a graduate seminar. First day of class, he has his mistress in the corner sitting, waiting for him. He brings out his dog, which I don't mind dogs. I love dogs, actually. But then he put his dog on the table running around. (laughs) This was not academia. And at that point, and I was was already having doubts about academia. What kind of dog? That's the important part. One of the small ones. Uh, Like, what, what kind of been? Maybe it been a Bichon, Bichon Freeze, maybe? Sure. One of those. The dog, the dog was innocent in this. Mm-hmm. It was a, the, the dog did what dogs do, bark and run around and right. you know, do all that stuff. Yeah. But I just found it so unprofessional. I already well, it sounds ha- unprofessional. <laughs> I already had uh, <laughs> doubts about, yeah, dogs. <laughs> I already had doubts about getting into, into academia. So I told Will, hey, Will, I want to quit uh, UCLA. And like, can you give me a full-time job at the weekly? And he's like, you're not ready for that, number one. Which stung, but it was true. But more importantly, he's like, "Look, you're in a you're in a uh, in a track. It's only two years. It's two years. You finish in two years. That's 2003. By then, it's already a year and a half away. You could get your master's degree. And the other thing with UCLA, I was in a stipend. So I, not only was my tuition covered, but they were giving me money to go mm-hmm. to UCLA. He's like, you'd be dumb to give this up. He was like, acting like a dad. Basically, oh, he. I mean, he is my intellectual father. I have mm-hmm. always said." I owe my entire career, especially Ask a Mexican. I have never denied it. I owe it all to Will Swaim. Always will, always. And which made, of course, later on uh, breaking up painful. But you know, we reconciled, which is awesome. But um, and I remember, and he said, like in the meanwhile, just keep pitching stories, grow as a reporter, and then when you graduate, we'll see what I could do. And so that's what I did. Uh, eventually, got me a grant through the Association of Alternative News Weeklies, a diversity grant. Where during the summer of two thousand and two, I was able to, uh, you know, be, basically be paid as a staff writer. So I worked alongside Anthony Pignataro, Dave. Well, I think yeah, Dave Walenga. Oh, Dave Walenga. Everyone Dave. loves Dave. I think Dave is the most loved person of everyone on staff. Uh, hello. Besides you. <laughs> You you no, are it's immortalized. True. It's true. Well, because he stayed there longer yeah, than you. Okay. That's why. So okay. you know, okay. you're like you sure, know. It's okay. <laughs> no. I love Dave too. He's yeah. great. Dave is amazing, amazing, very kind man. And um, so you know, worked as a staff writer. Then at the end, when I finished my uh, internship, my that's my official internship. That was only for the summer. We'll said we want you to be our full time food critic. And I remember what? Like by then, I had written about music, theater, film, which is mm. what I got my degree in got into hard news and i was surprised i'm like really me food and i kind of thought it was be- not beneath myself but i'm like oh that's like that's not the most prestigious of positions little did i know my god food galore but he told me something interesting he's like we have never had someone write about food the way you write you write about food not just as someone who likes food but someone who knows about politics someone who knows about that so 
my official job then became the food editor, even though like I was only getting paid per review. It wasn't a full-time job, but by 2002, I could say that's when I really started at the OC Weekly with an actual position instead of a freelancer. I was a food writer. And then by the time I graduated UCLA in 2003, basically he kept his promise because by then Anthony Pignataro had left to be the editor of Maui Time Weekly in Maui. I know, the dream job of dream jobs. <laughs> So they need a new writer, and Will. I remember the email saying, "Hey, you know, he would always call. He would always give nicknames to everyone. What was your nickname? Alonzo. Alon. Okay. Um, because what happened? The way someone wrote, someone wrote a letter that was critical of something I had written, and he felt that it was sexist. Mm. And he was like, "Would you have sent this same thing if she, if she was male? Like if her name was Alonzo Rosen." Um, and then that just started this thing where he called me Alonzo. Yeah, he did have nicknames for everyone. Everyone. I always say people who try to assert their power over other people always give everyone nicknames. <laughs> always. And that is will to a T. So my nickname for him was G-Pup. Mm-hmm. It was G-Pup. That came because it was funny because I did an interview with Carlos Mencia back before he started stealing jokes when he was kind of cool. And uh, there was – he said something about uh, – long story short, there was a you know there was a cholo joke in there. Will apparently thought it would be funny if I had a, a cholo nickname like G-Puppet. <laughs> Shorten it to G-Pup, so I became G-Pup. So I remember the email. Hey, G-Pup, I have a job for you at the OC Weekly. I can't pay you anything. It was really nothing, but you could be full-time. Would you like it? I'm like, Oh, my of God. That's, that was how my initial job offer came as well. <laughs> and I passed on that, and then I came back like a year later, and I was like, okay. But I remember, it's like, how would you like to work really hard for very little money? I was like, that you're not selling it. <laughs> I say that all the time now to people. I'm like, yeah. you're going to get paid shit. But you're gonna, you're never gonna have a better job than at the weekly. And everyone who leaves, almost everyone who leaves, they always say that yeah. like, under my regime, mine and Nick's regime. Like they say that, like, yeah, we'll never be able mm-hmm. to go back. You know, we gotta get back or something like right. that. Right. Okay. So how did you go from that to being editor publisher? Oh my God, we're, we're skipping to ask a Mexican. Part I know. Too. I so know. Much. It's I'm trying to compress because we have other things to get to, and yeah. we're we're running long. Although I do want to. Well, tell me that, then we'll. Quick, no, we'll get into Ask a Mexican when we take people's questions over Twitter. Yeah, no, I, 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 I just have to really thank you. This is just like so in depth and like, I mean, I don't know. Am I cool? Like, are, are you, am I entertaining you at all? I'm entertained. Okay, good, good. As long as you are, because I'm telling, I'm basically telling you my life story. Like, this that's is like what, an oral, I, That's what I like. I know. This is like an oral history. Like, you, you better put this in a bound volume. It's and an oral it. history of G-pop. Of G-pop right there. Long story short with editor, uh, and this is, I'm going to compress basically a decade's worth right here, but it has to. So, OC Weekly, Ben in 2003, glory years, awesome. We knocked down Sheriffs, we knocked down the Catholic Church, all this stuff. Then we get bought out by our eternal rivals, the New Times. They, the New Times. So OC Weekly used to belong to a chain of newspapers called Village Voice Media or whatever the hell. Stern Publishing. Stern Publishing, yeah, yeah. Even back in the day. We've had a lot of owners. Our arch rivals were the New Times. The New Times buy us out. Three quarters of the OC Weekly staff leave, leaving me, Nick Scow, Scott Moxley, the greatest investigative reporter of all time. Matt Coker, the most unsung hero at the Weekly, yeah. so hilarious. And Patty Marster is really the person who has always been there and just kept the paper together. Uh, the new owners, they put in all these – they're people. They get a guy, nice guy, really as a person, nice guy, but was just not cut out to be an editor. Eventually, morale just starts sinking lower and lower and lower. I get promoted to – man. at this point, actually at that point, this would have been – 
2009, I was thinking of leaving the weekly just because it was so miserable. But I'm mm-hmm. like, no, 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 no. It was a very traumatic breakup that those of us who stayed with the right because there was sort of an upstart paper that will started right the district in long yeah. beach and i mean it was it was really really bitter but i'm glad to say at our 20th anniversary which we all missed you i wish i, I know had been there. but everyone it was awesome all like you know the past was a past we're all now a family together again but i remember the whole reason i stayed at the weekly because at that point with ask a mexican blowing up i was getting offers to go to hollywood i was getting offers to go to the la times like all like natural mm-hmm. stuff i'm like no, this paper was so influential in my life and it has done so much good to Orange County. I'm not going to stand here and let this paper get run to down, run to the ground by people who cannot value it. So I'm like, I got to put myself on a track to eventually take over this paper. So I applied to be managing editor. I was a year later, I became the editor of the paper. And then I appointed as my managing editor, Nick Scow. So I call, I call it the, uh, you know, the restoration. It was the old school <laughs> weekly coming back and setting things back into place. And then as publisher, I'm not publisher. Oh, you're not. No. Oh, it's okay. Why did I think that people, uh, people, all, people always think that because at this point, you know, I'm out there. I talk to the sales staff a lot, but no, I, oh God, I would not want to be published. No, I was surprised because I was, I was thinking that must be very difficult since especially my memory is that there was like a real division between sales and editorial. I wonder why I thought you were, pu- I think I read it. Could I have read it? Somewhere? Maybe you read it somewhere. I mean, I will say this. I, I have always, t- yes, there should be a division between editorial and publish and the advertising side, but I always make it a point to, keep in contact with the ad people because the ad people, they know good stories. They know they good do. stories. Some yeah. of their clients, you know, we've covered some of their clients, not because they advertise with us, but they're good clients. And what I'm brought into nowadays, I speak to them once a month and, hey, give them a pep talk. I like, I, that's what I've learned. <laughs> I, this might sound very egotistical, but I'll say it, I don't care. What I've learned in, really in this past couple of years is that people sometimes will call me just because they want an energy boost from me. <laughs> like, I guess I'm like this ball of energy, always positive, always ready to kick ass. So like literally people who I have not heard from in a long time. And I, and I learned this finally from like talking to a friend of mine who I know had had a tough time and I hadn't talked to them in a while, but we'd emailed each other. And I remember just hearing myself saying like, no, you can do it, blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards I'm like, this person just used me. <laughs> but I'm like, I appreciate that. But yeah, so that's what I'm I'm used to for the sales stuff. Just, you know, give them a jolt of energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Weird. Let's see. Okay. So let's see. Let's talk about Ask a Mexican quickly because we're going to get into it Sure, the it questions. More. I, love, I love the questions, except the, that weird guy. Do you wipe sitting down or standing up? That's the thing that, <laughs> that, that comes up on. That's more about this show than about you. Okay, I didn't hear that part there. Yeah. That's hilarious, though. So Ask a Mexican started, it was Will's idea, started as a satirical, right? It was satirical to begin with. It was, you'll remember these. Remember when we would just run a column called New Column and yeah. it would never run again? That's exactly what Ask a Mexican was. So what happened was it was right after uh, the 2004 election, after WB uh, John Kerry. And for like all of 2004, I had run, I had curated to be specific, a column called Burning Bush, where I, where I would find conservative critiques of George W. Bush <laughs> and we'd publish them. And it was a great column. It was a, it was a great education for me. So after the election, of course, we it was not going to run anymore because W won. So we needed to fill that space. Oh, those days when you had to fill in space mm-hmm. in print newspapers, no longer. But um, hmm. Will went to me and said he had just seen a, uh, a billboard of the Spanish-language DJ, El Piolin, very famous DJ, of course, later on got accused of sexual harassment, but that's neither here nor there. But um, 
he he didn't know who he was. And then he said, like, oh, like, there's a lot of people who have questions about Mexican. So why don't we just do a column making fun of that ignorance called Ask a Mexican, where people send in questions about, about Mexicans, and you answer them. And I didn't like the idea. Not because I thought it was stereotypical or racist, but I thought, eh, it's cliched. No one will read it. Like, it's, it's kind of a lame idea. But he kept pushing. <laughs> he kept pushing me. That's also one thing in my life. If anyone wants to learn about life lessons, I have always denied opportunities, but then realized I'm stupid for denying them. Yeah. Then I got them. I, that's been my entire career in a nutshell. Den- say, first saying no, then saying yes. And running back and saying, yeah, no, 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 please get me. But um, what ended up happening was we had to fill in space that week. And he said, we'll only do it once. It'll be a new column. It's like, all right, fine. Go back. Think to myself, what could be the dumbest question someone could ask me about Mexicans? So I got a question Will would always ask me. He'd be, hey, G-Pub, why do uh, Mexicans always call white people gringos? I'm like, and I would always say, we don't call them gringos. We call you guys gabachos. So I literally go back when we figured, okay, it's going to be an advice column. So we have to do it like Dear Abby. So mm-hmm. go back. Dear Mexican, why do Mexicans call white people gringos? Then I give my response at the bottom of the column, we put, hey, got a spicy question about Mexicans? Ask a Mexican. <laughs> you know, I didn't think of the title. I mean, it's so hazy at that point. Will thought of the idea. I gave the answer. Then we figured, let's call it Ask a Mexican and do that upside down exclamation point, <laughs> even though it's in English, because people always go insane about that right. for some reason. And then as the logo it's so for the authentic. Co- it's so authentic <laughs> and just evil. And it's and then at, as a logo, since remember, it's an advice column. So I always loved Dear Abby and Ann Landers. You'd always see in hints from Heloise. You yeah. always see like Heloise always looks so smug and know it all. Mm-hmm. And then Ann Landers and Dear Abby, they were just there. It was like so boring. So we figured if we're going to run a picture, let's not run a picture of me, but let's run the picture of it's the history behind that is your classic stereotypical bandito. But that picture we had run on the cover in oh yeah and and this all happened by the way 2004 so Cinco de Mayo we had a why we hate Mexicans issue (laughs) which was it was a serious story it was a serious um issue though it was a history of Mexican hating in Orange County Uh and we ran that though we figured okay we're gonna talk about the hatred of Mexicans in Orange County so let's run just this gross caricature of a Mexican on the cover we got a lot of legitimate complaint letters and I explained what it was so we brought that back for Ask a Mexican the column and it's very and you know that it was not meant to last long because that same issue on that same page was another column called Ask a Canadian Mm -hmm. so come on folks it was supposed to be a joke But the reaction we got, oh my God, people hated it and people liked it, which it always happens. But the most important thing, people started sending in questions. Our staff meetings, nowadays they're on Tuesdays, but we would always have staff meetings Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock. By the time I got into the office, I already had 50 questions. So I go to Will, I'm like, Will, we have a bunch of questions. What the hell are we going to do with them? And he's like, well, let's just continue doing this column until there's no more questions to be answered. Here I am, 12 years old, on Allison Rosen's your new best friend, about to answer questions about Mexico. <laughs> they never stopped. Did you have any moment, though, where where you're like, do I want my career to be this? To be, you know, a, I don't know, the, the, the language that's coming to my head is like, to be a professional Mexican. You know, and that, that might not be accurate, but yeah, no, you know no. what I mean? Yeah, no, it, in fact, yeah, kind of, but not really, because... It's funny because if people know me at all across the country, nowadays it's more like it's because of Taco USA, but if people knew me- Which is your most recent book. Most recent book, yeah. But if people knew me at all around the country, it was because of this Ask a Mexican column. So 
The public at large would peg me, oh, professional Mexican only knows stuff about Mexicans. But Will and the readers in Orange County knew that was way more than that. Mm-hmm. And I, and for me, it was always important. Like, I'm never – the journalist Sam Quinones gave me this great piece of advice early, early on, even before I got into – like, well, when I was first starting at the Weekly, he's like, do not let them pigeonhole you. Because I remember I telling him, like, oh, I want to be a great Latino reporter. He's like – no, be a great reporter, period. If you pigeonhole yourself as a Latino reporter, you're only going to get those jobs. And there's a lot of people who are going for them, and you're better than that. Like, why shouldn't you be doing stories about surfing in Huntington Beach? Why shouldn't you be doing mm-hmm. stories? The important issues of our time. <laughs> why should it? Which I've never done a story. Well, I know I interviewed the OC Weekly rack that was destroyed during the Huntington Beach riots, mm-hmm. the U.S. Open of Surfing. That was a very important story. Racky, we call them. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> But no, so I always stuck with me. So I, the funny thing about pegging is Will, at one point, he wanted me to start a Spanish language OC Weekly. Oh, that's interesting. Exactly. Cause he, I think in his mind, Will thought I could peg him as my Mexican. And I, that's when I said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm already a reporter with you doing all sorts of things. I do not want to be this Mexican. Right. So if people knew me on a national scale as Ask a Mexican, as the Mexican, I don't care because my day job is still being, you know, I always tell people my real job, well, nowadays my real job is editor of OC Weekly, but my, my, my primary responsibility, I'm a food critic. You know, I have to do everything and anything. Then it's my investigative reporting and then Ask a Mexican. Really to this day, Ask a Mexican is like my fourth responsibility. So people could peg me all they want, but I know who I am and my staff knows I'm more than just writing about Mexicans. But that said, I love doing the column. It's fun. Mm. Okay, well, let's take some questions that came in over Twitter. When we ask, we send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Boinkity says, will you ask him if my family is still Mexican if we buy pre-made masa for our Christmas tamales making day? Absolutely. And really all Mexicans, when it comes to Christmas time, when that is tamale time, t- tamale time uh, times a million, they're all buying it from a supermarket. I, and I told, I remember getting this uh, on Twitter. I, I said, the sin is buying maseca. Maseca is just basically pre-made flour that you just, uh, it's, what do you call it? Yeah, maseca would be pre-made flour that you reconstitute with water. The problem with that isn't so much that, but the company behind it. Gruma is basically the Monsanto of Mexico. Totally evil. So just go to your local taqueria. And then, of course, if we're talking about tamales and Christmas, the classic uh, joke, which I know you know. What, why is it that Mexicans wrap tamales during Christmas? Why? So they could have something to unwrap. <laughs> Exactly. So racist and stereotypical and hilarious. Rafael Castaneda says, I get my light skin from my mom from Zacatecas. Darker Mexis say I'm white. Do they hate me because I'm beautiful? Who hates Mexicans more than Donald Trump? Mexicans. <laughs> we hate each other like crazy. You're too light skinned. We hate you. We're too, you're, we're too dark skinned. We hate you. You look like a Chinese guy. We hate you. You're a nerd. We hate you. Mexicans love to love to hate. We just do it. I mean, and that's going to be because, uh, Mexico, it's Mexico's as race obsessed as the United States, except for us, it goes back more centuries. Cause remember, we go back to the 1500s. The United States only really started in the 1700s, but it comes out in different forms of racism. So like, best example, like, 
my 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 brother, my youngest brother, I'm sort of light skin. My brother's very dark skin. So the nickname that they would call my brother is a Prieto Asabache. That literally, the term Asabache is only used for horses. So you're, they're basically calling my dad or my, my brother a savage black person. Prieto Asabache. Yay, we love you, Prieto Asabache. <laughs> Uh, Adrian Bordoni says, Latino or Hispanic? New term needed? We'll share, share answer with my Latino studies class. That's always a question. Do we call you people Latino or Hispanic? Here's a, here's a reality. Most Mexicans don't even care for either of those terms. Those terms only exist in the United States. Usually Hispanic is used by conservatives and conservative uh, you know, Hispanics themselves. Latinos more – and also on the East Coast and, and Florida, Latinos more of a West Coast thing. And also Texas, they use Hispanic. But most Mexicans, they like being called Mexican. Most Mexicans are going to identify with a part of Mexico where they're from. Like you really get into these small little micro identities. But really if you're going to be offended by someone or you know, if someone's going to be offended if you call them Hispanic, just say, okay, what do you want me to call you? And hey, by the way, it's better that me call you Hispanic than me call you a pendejo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. For SoCal Latinos, how would you arrange the devotional hierarchy of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Morrissey? <laughs> the most asked question I've ever gotten. Well, no, that's the second most asked question. The most asked question, why do Mexicans go into the ocean with their clothes on? Why do we swim? And the answer is because we don't want to. Uh, uh, we, we don't want to blind you with our many, many rolls of fat on our, <laughs> on our bellies. Absolutely true. It's not Catholicism. It's just modesty. I've heard that referred to as a shame shirt. A shame shirt. Uh, we're, you see those panzas? We're not ashamed of those panzas. <laughs> we just want to block you from being disgusted by us. But the classic question: Why do Mexicans love Morrissey? I did a whole cover story about it. I get calls all the time about it to this day. Uh, it's in my book. Ask a Mexican. In. And the short answer is because Morrissey's a great musician. The longer answer is because Morrissey came of it, you know, the Smiths came of age during the 1980s, a time where Mexican Americans were, for the first time ever, were able to be both Mexican and American at the same time. Before you'd have to drop your Mexican identity and completely assimilate. Mm-hmm. Here you could be totally proud into Mexican, into Morrissey and whatnot. And you could also be into uh, Vicente Fernandez and Antonio Aguilar. And you see that era of the 80s? Everything from the 80s, Mexicans love. We love K-Rock. We love the Lakers because the Lakers were winning back then. We love the Raiders because the Raiders were winners back then. We didn't like the Angels because the Angels sucked back then. Or the Rams, they sucked. Uh, and then all the new wave bands, uh, The Cure, uh, you know, The Smiths, Duran Duran, then you get into metal, like Metallica, all that stuff. And the funny thing, though, I've always found about the Mexicans and Morrissey question is that people are amazed that Mexicans can love music that doesn't involve tubas or uh, accordions. So I get that all the time. Why do Mexicans love insert you know insert your group there everyone from led zeppelin to elvis presley to death metal to all that mexicans love all of that stuff morrissey again specifically and really his his music again i'm I'm going a bit long but really quickly his music is very much like mexican music and sort of existential angst Mm -hmm. there is a light that never goes out i swear is sentiment to sentiment for sentiment the same song as la cama de piedra by a very famous ranchera singer cuco sanchez in uh you know there's a light he says if a double decker bus smashes into us blah 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 in um las cama de piedra it's the day that i get killed not the day that i die the day that i get killed may it be with five bullets and be right next to you sentiment for sentiment mm. um this is this is a musicology education <laughs> 
Is musicology a word? Absolutely. I, I almost is. majored in it. Ethnic oh, really? Music, yeah, that, that's where we go. Wayne says, more seriously, will Hispanics turn out in higher numbers to vote against Trump if he's the nominee? Absolutely. It happened in Iowa. A lot of people are saying that the reason Donald Trump lost in Iowa was because a lot of Latinos went out to vote for other Republicans against Donald Trump. Of course, New Hampshire is like 99% white, so Trump was able to win there. But one thing about Mexicans, we don't really vote. We have, I mean, most Americans don't vote, period, but we will vote to go against people that we hate. So, we voted against Mitt Romney. The, we vote against Republicans basically every year now in California, except Arnold Schwarzenegger, because Mexicans love it's. It, you know, we love first in terms of, of of movie stars. The person we love the most is Charles Bronson, then Jean Claude Van Damme, then Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hmm. Absolutely true. And then hey, he had sex with a Colombian. Colombians are the Mexicans of South America. Um, Jason says, "What is the most underrated Mexican food in his opinion?" Oh, God, all of them. Um, I would say tortas, so Mexican sandwiches. I'm surprised they're not a thing yet because Americans love Mexican food. They love sandwiches. A torta is basically Mexican food inside a French roll. Mexi- Americans love French rolls. But, I mean, I, I always tell this to people. There should be – if someone wants to become a millionaire, you should basically chipot- – Chipotle eyes, tortas. You can make a killing off of it. Here in Southern California, there's a chain called Cook's Tortas, which is pretty good, but it's very small chain. There's like four or five of them. I mean, go go get rich. Go get rich. You guys, do it. <laughs> Adam A. says, I am Mexican and I don't speak Spanish. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine, man. Again, who hates Mexicans more than Mexicans? Mexicans. So people say, oh, you don't speak Spanish like this, or you don't say this, or you weren't born here, or you weren't born there. It used to bother me when I was younger. Now, you know, what I always tell people like that, in Spanish, tell them, vete la chingada, pinche way. In English, fuck the haters. Just tell them that. Tell them that. No, seriously. Like, if you identify... That that felt like more words than fuck the haters. (laughs) Vete la chingada means go to fucking hell. But it's basically the same thing. Fuck the haters. Okay. A a la chingada con pendejos or something, you know. A lot of words in Spanish. What can I tell you? <laughs> and lastly, Greg B. says, al pastor, barbacoa, carnitas, or fajita? Goat. Chivo. Birria. You know, so he's talking about all these different styles of meat. Carni- What's barbacoa? Barbacoa is going to be, usually it's done with lamb, and you slow roast it. So it's basically old school barbecue, mm-hmm. the original barbecue. You just slow roast it in an earthen pit here in the United States. You can make like bar- barbacoa de borrego, which is lamb, barbacoa de res, which is basically beef or whatnot. It's really good. Very, very tender, very juicy. I like it. I like birria more though. It's goat. Basically, basically would be the barbacoa version of goat, except they usually make it in a soup or you could eat it dried. Goat's amazing. If you I'm haven't had goat. I think if I've ever had goat. I, I I feel like I haven't. <laughs> I would I would recommend for you. Do you like spicy food? No. Okay, never. Never I'm sorry. mind. Cuz with go, it's like all cultures always love to serve it spicy. So mm-hmm. never mind. Does it need the spiciness to hide the goatiness? Um, well, I I love the goatiness of it. It's very gamey. So if you don't like gamey meats, then you shouldn't go for goat. I'm okay a goat. with goat cheese. I oh, feel goat like cheese is amazing. That's the goatiest of it all, right? No, no, no. You get oh, a whole really? other level of funk. Like okay. really good funk. Um, I guess you could have goat. I might <laughs> like, tap out at goat cheese. <laughs> you're like, I guess you could have goat without chili, but then that would defeat the purpose of goat. Like, why would you want to do that? Hmm. I guess you can. There's no mild goat dishes. <laughs> Like cream of goat, <laughs> cream, cream of, of goat, goat soup, goat casserole, uh, <laughs> yeah. goat goat porridge. Maybe I can't mm-hmm. think of one right now. They're all, all spicy. Right. 
Um, let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? I have to say, there's so much to talk with you about that I feel I have not done the definite. Well, this I is, feel I might have done the definitive oh Gustavo Ariana interview, but there's still more. So we're just going to have to talk some other time. Yeah, because anytime. there's also like, you know, what we have not delved into is how you met your wife, what she's like. Do you have kids, she's et cetera? My, my wife, just a quick plug for her. She does these annual arts and crafts festivals called Patchwork. It's kind of like if you've ever been to Unique LA or what's the other one? But basically imagine an Etsy shop come to life with a bunch of cool people. She does them in Long Beach, Oakland, and also in uh-huh, Santa cool. Ana. So patchworkshow.com. And she's got to open a new market uh, specializing in foods of the Southwest and Mexico called Alta Baja Market. You could Google that. She's amazing. I, I I totally lucked out. Maybe you knew her though. She was one of the hot waitresses at the Gypsy Den. The, so the Gypsy Den. There's this alternative mall in Orange County called the Lab, and you might think, what's an alternative mall? <laughs> it's an outdoor mall that looks kind of like rough industrial. and industrial. Yeah, it's not really alternative. It's just a little bit industrial. But there's this coffee house, the Gypsy Den, which my friends called the Hippie Den, and we used to go there all the time, even though. I don't think their coffee is very good. No. It's tasteless. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> it's weird how popular they can be for having such terrible coffee but decent food. Um, so you so you, you shacked up with a hot Gypsy Den oh waitress. Oh, my God. The hottest one. Which, which one? She would have been the tall one with the double Ds. <laughs> As a woman, sorry, <laughs> I don't remember sorry. which one that is, but... But you go, man. Yeah, sorry, no, but she That's was she okay. was a, she was a queen bee of them all, and I was able to trick her into marrying me. You'll just have to show me a picture of her. Yeah, um, because then maybe when you tell me who made that racist comment, because then maybe it'll jog my memory. <laughs> um, so wait, did you marry a white lady? She's half white, half Mexican. Okay. What did you care at all? No, no. My my dad, uh, you know, even though he's an immigrant, he said, "I want you to date a girl of every race. I want you to date a black girl, a Chinese girl, a Muslim girl." And I almost succeeded with all of them uh, in dating them. But you know, it was yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I dated everything except a Mexican because the Mexican girls would never want to be with me because I was too much of a nerd and not Mexican enough. For them. Right. Interesting. Okay, so this is where people write in and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And we say whether we also do these things. The great one says, walk at a slightly faster pace when I'm on stairs for some reason. Um, If there is someone behind me, then I get a little bit stressed out and I do walk faster. But in general, I slow down on stairs because I'm just lazy and tired. I'll just walk. I mean, if I think there might be a race, I'll try to race that person in my own mind. <laughs> or if the person's going super fast and I can tell they're in a hurry, I'll just stop and let them yeah. go. You know, I go fast going downstairs. Mm. But going up, I don't. I definitely don't do two stairs at a clip either. Yeah, I, I, I go like, faster upstairs. Downstairs, I always think I'm going to fall and die. Yeah, it could happen. So <laughs> it's good to be uh, looking out. Den- Dennis C. says... Hate the use of flashlights in shows or movies when they are trying to hide or sneak. You know, I've never <laughs> noticed that. But you're right. If you're trying to hide or sneak, you probably shouldn't have a flashlight. 
I, I, at this point, you'd have a smartphone anyway, right? You know, and the, the, I mean, when you're in a movie theater, it's so it's interesting because you're in front of this humongous screen. Yet, if you even open up your phone, it all that like brightness gets to people. Yeah, yeah, one time when we were watching a Nick Scow's film, Kill the Messenger, I took the whole staff. We like you know, we're we're being at a theater and we're being all rowdy. Then. The rowdiness was fine, and then I turned on my phone. Some old lady, excuse me, but you have your phone on. I'm like, I'm checking my email. I'm a freaking worker. Damn it, got mad. <laughs> I if when I'm at the movies, I have my phone in my purse, like at the bottom of my purse, and then I open my purse. I have it in my lap, and I peek in, and then I I touch the the home button to light up my phone, and I just keep it all very contained. That's and smart. I don't know. I, I'm convinced it doesn't bother anyone, but. It might. Bad Blood said, oh, speaking of movies, I actually found E.T. incredibly underwhelming and it did not live up to the hype. A result of watching it as an adult? Maybe. I haven't watched it as an adult, so I don't know. I have never liked E.T. I always, I've never really liked Steven Spielberg, especially and then to begin with. And then once I started seeing his films a more critical point of view, I mean, he makes the same film again and again. These kids who are always seeing their parents argue one mm. way or another and like cast adrift. He's basically telling his life story because that's what that's Spielberg's childhood. Um, Jeff, have you seen E.T. as an adult? I haven't seen it as an adult, but I've heard this criticism that it's very saccharine as an adult when you revisit it. All right. I kind of want to revisit it. Um, and somebody recently told me that they were scared to death. Of I ET. was. It wasn't me who told you that, but I was very scared yeah, as he's, a kid. He's freaky. He's looking. freaky. Yeah. yeah. He's got that neck that goes up. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah and those fingers. Yeah. He's freaky. He's I wasn't cute. scared of him. But I'm like, yeah, you're kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard sell. Ray Morgan says, "Keep getting Joe." Excuse me. Ray Morgan says, keep getting Josh Groban and Joe Rogan mixed up. I love that. I could not love that more. I don't have that problem, but I love that someone does. Who do I always confuse? Oh, 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 oh. Francis Bacon, the artist, with Francis Drake, the explorer. How embarrassing for you. (laughs) That's what I always confuse with. Sorry. Does this come up often? Yes, because my wife has a Francis Bacon book, and so I always look at him, and I start thinking of uh, the Spanish Armada and all this. And mm. I told you I was a nerd. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah says, sign the customer copy of your credit card receipt at a restaurant. Why? But I do it every time. I go through phases where occasionally I will sign it and put it in my purse, and then I think, I never do anything with this, so usually I don't. I do it as much as possible because I could get reimbursed. And oh. it could also be for my taxes. So it's smart to do it. Yeah. For that oh reason, God, but... it, it piles up. I, yeah. so someone once told me that, like, it finally dawned on me a couple of years ago. They're like, "You live your career. Like your 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 life is your job. So everything that you do is basically an expense. So you might as well keep it. At, you know, keep it for tax time. And not every. I mean, I have a good tax guy, so not everything. I'll tell him what I'm trying to expense. But for the most part, like meals for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a tax expense. Yeah. Lane says, when on IMDb or Googling someone and I see they're dead, I take note of the year to see if I could be their reincarnation. I love that. I don't do that, but I bet that there are other people out there who do that kind of stuff. I, I am the reincarnation of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper because they died the day and I that was pilot. born. And that poor pilot, whatever his name is, but not Waylon, Waylon Jennings, who was supposed to be on that plane, mm. but he had a cold. Waylon Jennings' daughter, I think it's Waylon Jennings' daughter, uh, was on a reality show, and 
is the I might be spreading false information, <laughs> but I believe she's the owner of Phonuts. Are you familiar with Phonuts? That like they're baked donuts in L.A. Yeah, I only know this because it was like called Eat, Cook, Love, or Love Sip Dance. Or, I don't know. <laughs> it was I got weirdly sucked into it. Her name is Waylon. Maybe it's not. Her actually, name is Waylon. Yeah, maybe you know what? Maybe it's probably not Waylon Jennings' daughter. Her name is Waylon. Uh huh. I feel like she has some association with him, but it's probably not, she's probably not his daughter. Besides the name Waylon. Yeah. Like I said, I wish I hadn't opened my mouth. I didn't say that, but now I'll say that. <laughs> Harmony Barnard says, There is something so satisfying about the crunch of a dried leaf when you step on it. Um, I am always a little hesitant to walk on a pile of dried leaves because I'm afraid there could be some little critter in there yeah. or bugs or something like that. And lastly, Bruise by Dawn says, When you have to reboot a system, there's always the what if it doesn't restart fear. Yes, Yes, time to thousand. My husband is so meticulous, uh, f- fastidious actually about syncing his iPhone to his computer, restarting everything. I every time I sit down at my computer, it feels like I click that remind me tomorrow, remind me tomorrow, update thing. I just don't trust technology enough. I'm, I'm afraid to update anything, yeah. Or unless I save it like five times, because I think one time that happened to me, it just wiped everything that I had off. I'm like, yeah. God damn it. Do you update a lot, Jeff? I, I only update when absolutely necessary because it something always breaks. Yes. It, and it's like moving. It's it's just never easy. The, the easiest version of it always takes a while. Mm-hmm. And then something always doesn't work. I want my computer to work. So unless there's a reason for the upgrade, unless it's like, I need that thing that it can only do on the upgrade, right. let sleeping dogs lie. I just got the new iPhone and... Was like, oh, this will. I was. I put. I put off setting it up until the next day when I knew I had a little more time. Because I'm mm-hmm. like, there's no way this is only going to take the allotted amount of time. Oh yeah. But but I did not expect what happened to happen, which is I couldn't restore it from a backup in the cloud because it didn't have the the new phone didn't have advanced enough software. Right. Hmm. Um. So, so it, I had to call Apple and they had to walk me through it, but. It, the amount of stress it caused me, it was kind of ridiculous. Like, this is very much a first world problem. And now, get this problem, you guys. My life's hard. It, now my, my car can't, like, it won't pair the Bluetooth. Oh. So I'm probably going to walk into the ocean. I don't know what to do. I have never had a car. I, I'm driving right now a 1991 Toyota pickup truck. I don't think I've, I, I've never owned a car that's of last decade. They're all from the 90s or the 70s or the 60s. Cars have come a long way. Oh my I God. drove um, an ancient Honda, the one of the first Hondas ever made. Not really, but it was a very, very old Honda for the longest time because um, Hondas will drive forever. And before that, I had a really old Honda as well. And then just recently, I upgraded into the Nows. Cars, cars are amazing now. They are computers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sinking in. Like, whenever I get a rental traveling around the country, and they're like, oh, wait, there's USB ports, mm-hmm. and there's Sirius, and then this and that. It's amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. I, I don't know what all... I don't know, but I like old cars. Like, I just bought... Yeah. I just got a 79 Ford Ranger F-150 Super Cab. It's like a tank, and it's brown, too. We drove it all the way from Mexico up here. It was, it was, a, it was a truck that my uncles would drive in mexico when they would go visit back and so they had it in a garage and they would only go there like use it two days out of the week for 25 years it only has forty thousand miles on it wow it's a beast wow you guys 
If you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, perhaps one of Gustavo's three books, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you guys for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. PayPal links on the right side of the website. We have t-shirts available and we have bonus episodes and ringtones and all sorts of fancy stuff if you go to the store on the website. Also, um, this just in people write in and they're like, what is the code for that sponsor? Or where do I go for that thing? So on the website under the about section, it says support the show that has all the, the sponsor codes and things like that. Thank you for the support. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen, follow the show's Twitter feed at ARIYNBF, email us ARIYNBF show at gmail.com. Oh, also we should have played the ringtone. I, I spoke too fast. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. Yes, you need this. And you need that. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And FYI, the pilot in The Day the Music Died was Roger Peterson. It was my uncle. (laughs) Rest in peace. Seriously. Gustavo, thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. This was great. I'm so proud of you. Oh, Seriously. I'm proud of you. You're, you're about, you went to New York, and now you're back in L.A., and you're going to conquer more and more and more. Thank you. Chingona. So, uh, right back at you. <laughs> so um, tell everyone where they should go to find you and uh, tell them what they should look for and all that stuff. For sure. So you could follow me on Twitter at Gustavo Ariano, all one word, one R, two L's. Instagram, Gustavo underscore Ariano. And of course, follow us at OC Weekly, at OC Weekly all across the board. Also, the show that I'm working on for Fox, Border Town on Twitter, Border Town on Fox. We air every Sunday at 9.30 p.m., uh, 8.30 Central. And of course, in March, we're going to switch over to 7 p.m. So definitely support that. That's an awesome, funny, hilarious cartoon. Very, very good. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know? Alison Rosen Show